Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center in Europe-Russia Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Is Russia gaining in the global south? That's the topic we'll be discussing today here at CSIS, and thank you so much for joining us. Russia's invasion of Ukraine shocked Europe and the West, but Europe and the West have also been surprised at how effective Russia's engagement has been with the global south. Uh, and to discuss Russia's strategy to the global south, and that's the the, the term, for lack of a, a better one, that we'll be using today, uh, uh, to discuss Russia's strategy, uh, in the wake of Russia's uh, 2022 uh, invasion of Ukraine. I have two uh, phenomenal experts, both of whom are, are also CSIS affiliates of the Europe-Russia Eurasia program. First, let me introduce uh, Michael Kimmage, uh, Senior Associate and Non-Resident Fellow with our program. Michael has a wide-ranging academic policy and think tank experience. He's a professor at the Catholic University of America, where he's the chair of the history department. Uh, and from 2014 to 2016, Michael had uh, the privilege of being my colleague uh, uh, at the U.S. Department of St State uh, on the policy planning staff, where he held uh, the Russia-Ukraine portfolio at a re really pivotal time. Um, uh, Kimmage also is the chair of the advisory board at the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute, and he serves on the advisory board of the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. Uh, and next, uh, we have with us from Berlin here in Washington uh, is a special guest, Hannah Note. Hannah is another senior associate non-resident fellow with our program uh, here at CSIS and is currently based in Berlin, where she focuses on Russian foreign policy, Russia's relations with the global south broadly, and the Middle East in particular. Uh, and she is an expert also on all things uh, Russian arms control and nonproliferation. Um, Hannah is the director of the Eurasia Nonproliferation Program at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies in the beautiful Monterey, California. Uh, so, Hannah, thank you so much for being here. Michael, you're you're here frequently, but thank you again for 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 joining us today. Uh, but Hannah, let me start with you. Um, in in your view, what has shifted in regards to Russia's strategy? Uh, towards the global south, and as I mentioned, we're going to use the term global south. There's lots of consternation about the, about the phrase, but right. but we don't. No one's really identified a better term. But just for the sake of this conversation, what has shifted in Russia's strategy uh, since 2022, and what are the trends that that you're watching? I think going forward. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm delighted to be in Washington this week and to be joining you for this conversation. Um, Max, I think, you know, Russia was already trying to consolidate its partnerships in what we call the Global South. And you said, you know, th that is no monolith, but let's use the term for, for this conversation. In the years leading up to the uh, renewed invasion of Ukraine, Russia was turning east and south after the annexation of Crimea and in light of the sanctions that were leveled by Western countries against Russia since then, uh, 2014. What we see since February of last year is Russia really shifting into higher gears in that effort um, in the context of what I would call more broadly adaptation in Russian foreign policy in light of this intensive rupture with the West that we saw after February 2022. And that shifting into higher gears vis-a-vis -vis the global South is playing out in several dimensions. And I want to perhaps briefly go through those. So economically, 
Russia has found lifelines for its economy and defense enterprise in the global south, whether it's new markets for its hydrocarbon products, you know, Russia selling more oil to China or India, um, whether it's buying weapons uh, from the likes of Iran and the DPRK. Um, you know, there are some sectors where the, where the track record is perhaps a bit mixed. Russia as an arms provider to countries of the global south, I think it's a more mixed picture. And I believe we'll come to that later in the mm -hmm. conversation. But certainly Rosatom trying to gain new clients for Russian nuclear power plants. You know, these are the sort of areas where the Russian economy is trying to be competitive vis-a-vis -vis the global south. So that is one dimension. Ideologically, I would say that the global south has become the chief audience for Russia's war of narratives on the war against Ukraine. Russia frames this war against Ukraine as one that is defensive, preventive, existential for the Russian Federation. And that is a, an anti-colonial fight against Western or US dominance in, in, in the international system. And I think, you know, particularly to an African audience, and we see Russia really stepping up vis-a-vis -vis Africa mm -hmm. over the last 20 months. Um, you know, there's... Um, you know, some resonance for that argument given grievances uh, over Europe's colonial past on the continent, you know, and you have someone like Maria Zakharova, the spokeswoman of the Russian foreign ministry, sitting at the Russia-Africa summit in St. Petersburg earlier this summer and telling the audience that Russian men are dying at the front in Ukraine so that people from the African continent can be free. That is the narrative that Russia is projecting. Militarily, there's some effort to project power into the global south, post prigozhin Wagner is staying relevant in Africa. We can talk about that later. Russia retains its, its presence in Syria. There's some effort at projecting power, military power into the Western Hemisphere and in Asia with some joint exercises with partners. Though I do think that Russia's bandwidth to project military power into the global south is with has constraints. And then perhaps the most important arena, I think, is the diplomatic arena. Russia is seeking alignment with countries of the global south in the United Nations, in other multilateral institutions, and it's also trying to foster diplomatic partnerships that leave Western states out in the cold, if we think about the expansion of the BRICS, for example, something that Russia has sort of championed. And Max, if I take all of these things together and look at the sort of broad picture and what all of this means, I come to the conclusion that Russia has been, you know, notwithstanding all constraints, fairly successful in making sure it is not isolated at the global level, in maintaining those lifelines for the Russian economy, in fostering Ukraine fatigue uh, in parts of the global south, and thereby, if we take all these factors together, creating external conditions that are conducive for Russia fighting a long fight uh, against Ukraine. I think that's a, a really great overview. I mean, it seems like part of what, you know, we sometimes assume that Russia invades Ukraine or Russia takes some action, they're sanctioned by us, we, I think, assume this after 2014, and then sort of Russia would just sort of sit and pout and stop. Uh, and instead, we find out that they are, you know, have a large uh, uh, diplomatic corps uh, and are very focused in trying to advance their interests. Uh, and, and so part of, I think, what we've just seen is that Russia is going to to act, but maybe I mean, does it seem like part of what Russia's doing though it is that you know it's cut off from Europe now, it's cut off from from much of uh, the industrialized West, and so it's 
really focused on where it can make gains and it can potentially make gains in regions where there's skepticism of, of the US, of Europe, of Western narratives. Um, and then Russia has something to potentially offer. So, uh, and then, so if you're a sanctioned country yourself, you know, oh, you can have some affinities, so the North Koreas, the Iran. Right. So is this really just sort of Russia uh, basically being, um, you know, maybe not, it, it, maybe it's not about its outreach to the global south, but its outreach to the kind of countries that are already in the penalty box or have been penalized. Uh, and that's where Russia is now making headways. I think it's it's partially that, but not just. I do think there's a Russian outreach, not just to what we perhaps like to call the sanctioned countries, the pariahs of the international system. That is one story, and I'll, I'll come to that in a second. But there is also more broadly the outreach to what you could call the fence-sitters in the international system, those countries that have ties with the West, that have ties with Russia, that are not willing to sacrifice their ties with Russia for various reasons over the war in Ukraine, and to sort of foster... Uh, indifference over the war in Ukraine among those fence-sitters, I think, is meaningful for Russia, mm -hmm. um, especially in international diplomacy. But yes, there is, a, I think, a particular phenomenon now emerging with Russia's cooperation with sanctioned countries. I, I had a piece in, in, in Foreign Affairs a few weeks ago called Russia's Access of the Sanctioned. And, and Max, the starting point for me to write this piece was this observation that Russia is often ridiculed when it comes to its, its military performance, its shortcomings on the battlefield uh, in Ukraine, the fact that it's losing its position as a top arms exporter, and you did an excellent report on that, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, and Russia's limited bandwidth to project military power you know, globally in the way that the United States can. And while all this is true, I felt that it is also masking more subtle realities, which is that Russia is really enhancing its military cooperation with countries that are hostile to the United States and Europe. It's Iran and the DPRK, which are of particular concern because one is a near nuclear state and the other is a nuclear weapon state. But it is even countries like Venezuela, like Mali or other juntas in the Sahel region or a country like Myanmar. And so what I argue in the piece is that that has multiple implications for U.S. interests. First of all, in the aggregate, what Russia is receiving from those countries, I think will make a dent in the aggregate for Russia to sustain a war of attrition. I mean, if we look at the Iranian drones that were provided to Russia, they've had a meaningful impact on the battlefield. And I think there's a big concern now as we go into another winter for Ukraine, how those drones and possibly missiles will make themselves felt for Ukraine. But then there's also the concern over what Russia might be giving those countries in return. The U.S. is very concerned over prospective Russian support for Iran's missile program. You know, I think with the DPRK, we're still sort of watching and seeing. Kim Jong-un came to Russia mm -hmm. not long ago. There is concern over whether Russia could give something to the North Koreans on their submarine program. And the point of the piece was to say that we shouldn't just focus on these bilateral or dyadic relationships and what could materialize in terms of material support. It's more what kind of defense ecosystems could emerge from these networks. It's about knowledge transfer. It's about these countries talking about sanctions evasion techniques or the adaptation of dual-use goods. China, of course, plays a role in this network or access because it is also cooperating with all of these countries. And I think my concern is that Russia cooperating more, especially with Iran and with North Korea, 
is also potentially playing in, into the sense of emboldenment of these players and their risk appetite. I think you could make an argument that Iran already feels itself emboldened against the backdrop of this intensifying cooperation mm -hmm. with Russia. And so you have potentially new hotspots emerging um, as the US also tries to focus on Ukraine and on deterring uh, China over Taiwan. And so I, I wanted to paint this, that sort of picture in the piece. No, thank you. I think maybe, Michael, I want to bring you in, but I first want to just maybe I'll, I'll do a brief uh, overview of the report that, that Hannah mentioned that, that we put out at CSIS. Uh, it's called Seller's Remorse. You can get it on our on our website. It's done with uh, my colleague Maria Snegavaya, uh, Nick Fenton, and Tina Dobaya. Um, and what it essentially found is that it's not so much the war in Ukraine that has really put a, a massive dent in Russian arms sales, uh, but it was U.S. sanctions uh, in 2017, the Katza sanctions that Congress passed, I think, in May of 2017, and, and President Trump uh, ended up signing that summer. Um, and what that did is essentially, if Russia was competing with another Western European country or the United States for you know whether uh, fighter competition, uh, well, the sanctions essentially put a tax on Russian arms sales in the sense of if you bought Russian, you might be sanctioned, and that suddenly increases the cost. So whatever competitive advantage Russia might have had on, on price, they essentially lost that. And we've seen arms sales uh, from Russia uh, really decline. Uh, Russia, I think, has lost its number two spot as a global arms leader uh, to, to France. And what, so what has essentially happened is Russia, as, as, a, as a country where sort of a respected country would go to buy arms, has kind of stopped is sort of dried up. However, Russia's ability to continue to sell arms to countries where it has uh, long-standing relationships with, such as India, uh, that are so dependent on the Russian defense uh, industrial complex, and there's a number of countries that sort of fit this bill, uh, they're it's very difficult to sort of shift your where you're buying weapons. It's like you know shifting from from this phone to uh, another big American tech company's uh, rival. That you're locked in that ecosystem, and once you're locked in that ecosystem, it's very hard to sh to shift platforms. And so Russia is still being able to maintain that relationship with India, uh, that defense industrial relationship, as well as with a, a number of other countries. However, in, in pursuit of new weapon sales, it's likely going to struggle. In part now, uh, if you're looking at Russia, you're like, well, will they deliver the weapons that they're uh, that were committed? You know, are they going to deliver the S-400 system? Are they going to deliver those helicopters? But when it comes to uh, a region like Africa, where Russia it was in it not simply for the dollar or the the ruble value of its transactions, but for the diplomatic gains. There, Russia can continue to be a major provider of, of weapons at very little cost to Russia, you know, and maybe not in the form of security assistance, but where, you know, Russia provides uh, systems at the lower end, which don't, the U.S. doesn't really provide. And so I think this is where Russia will continue to use arms sales uh, to, you know, such as countries that have just experienced uh, coups in Africa. Uh, where Russia will look to be provide the to be the military provider um, uh, to them, so that they continue to sort of want to value that that relationship. And there's sort of very little uh, the West can actually do to to challenge that because we 
We don't produce new cheap equipment. <laughs> we have lots of old stuff that we can give away, less now because of Ukraine. Uh, but that, I think, creates a, a essential niche for Russia and as it's increasing defense industrial production. And if it gets to a point where it has essentially spare capacity uh, in in future years, if the war sort of simmers down, Russian pr production is is expanding. Russia may very well uh, find itself in a position where it can provide a lot of arms to a lot of partners, and there may be a number of countries, as you note, uh, on a, a lot of countries that may be willing to uh, to jump in. But with so that's sort of an overview of that report. Encourage people to go uh, check it out the CSIS dot uh, org website. But Michael, let me bring you into the conversation. I, first, you can react to anything that's been said so far. Uh, you and uh, Hannah had an excellent piece in Foreign Affairs titled how Russia globalized uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, maybe you could outline kind of the main arguments uh, in that piece and how you see sort of Russia's foreign policy strategy shifting as it's been sort of locked out of of, uh, of Europe and in the West. So first of all, wonderful to, uh, to be here with uh, these two colleagues. Uh, and in terms of answering this question in particular, I think in many ways, Hannah has already uh, answered it, that there are these lines of effort, economic, military, uh, and diplomatic, and they were pioneered crudely, perhaps, in 2014, and then pushed very, very intensively after 2022, uh, and have paid uh, certain dividends. Uh, it's always difficult to kind of gauge exactly how successful uh, all of this is, but they've definitely paid dividends, and exactly as you're outlining, Max, about arm sales and such, it's very much a process to watch for what its future implications may be far and beyond uh, the war in Ukraine. I'll just add you know, sort of two points that are not caveats or qualifiers, but footnotes, as it were, uh, to this larger story, and they're about what Russia is not doing. So what Russia is not really doing globally, and this separates it from the United States and from China, is saying, come follow our model. We have the template for politics. We're some sort of great example of how to do things. Uh, I doubt that that would be a very persuasive approach for Putin's Russia, which is not an economic powerhouse and has any number of internal uh, problems, but it's just not what Russia is selling. So, uh, you know, if there are Russian flags being waved in a particular African country, I think it signifies something about internationalism or about uh, local issues, but it's not because those countries wish to be like Russia, which is, of course, a great difference between Russia and the Soviet Union, which was promoting itself as a alternative, as a social model, as a political model. So Russia has either sort of given up on that or it just doesn't see that as particularly useful in some ways, you might say, well, that's a kind of Russian weakness, but I wonder if it doesn't also make Russia just a bit more flexible, if they can kind of pick and choose where they engage and they don't really have to engage as a uh, as an outright uh, alternative. Uh, and then secondly, what Russia is not doing, I'm not sure if this is a conscious effort on Russia's part, is that they're not winning the argument about Ukraine. So you can't say at international institutions or on the level of public opinion that millions upon millions of people really think that Ukraine is run by Nazis or that Ukraine was committing acts of genocide on ethnic Russian you know, populations in Ukraine before February 2022, or even that Russia has accomplished something of value uh, on the battlefields uh, of Ukraine. It's my conviction that global populations don't feel this way, uh, and they don't see the war as particularly good uh, or desirable. Uh, and they probably don't see Russia's performance in the war as particularly uh, impressive. I think that's a hard case to make. What they are trying to do is, in a sense, easier, undercut arguments that support Ukraine, as Hannah mentioned, Ukraine fatigue, make the United States look like it's 
without a plan, that it's fumbling, and that's, of course, something that Putin is now applying to the situation uh, in the Middle East. So it's a, a sort of a method of undercutting critics, uh, and it has you know some degree of cogency and success uh, as such, but it's not a sort of argument about uh, the good uh, or the impressive things that Russia does on the international stage. So that's, to me, a kind of curious quality of Russian foreign policy. It aims for a mediocre middle. Right. It's sort of reminding you of what you find annoying about the West and the United States and and, and Europe. Michael, maybe I could just press you uh, on your first point um, and that Putin's not really trying to, to, uh, Russia's not trying to create a model. And I agree with you. However, you know, prior to 2022, um, I think there was a sense that Russia was trying to create sort of the model strongman autocratic state that was uh, sort of, you know, Christian in its values, was white, was sort of far right. Uh, and that, I mean, had I, that was the sort of message it was playing off toward, toward a European Western audience. Uh, but it seems like that has sort of faded away since the war, that we don't really see Russia kind of promoting itself as sort of the harbinger of, of any sort of beacon. So, but has there, has that been a deliberate shift in strategy or are they just distracted by, by this war? No, I don't think there's a deliberate shift in strategy. I think that there is a project in the Kremlin, in Russia to sort of replicate what can be replicated or to build bridges where they can be built. So if there are far right Americans who feel that Russia is an example of Christian piety in the world, great, you know, let's, let's go with that. If there are communities in Africa that feel that gay rights has gone too far on the international stage and that Russia is pushing back in some constructive way, you know, great, let's work with that. If there are authoritarian figures out there, whether it's Erdogan or Xi Jinping or somebody else who feels that Russia is sort of an especially desirable partner because it's an authoritarian state, well, that's fine. That's 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 terrific. So all of these things are sort of instrumental uh, tools. Uh, and if they work, they work. And if they don't, they don't. What I don't think that they amount to, and I think that this is recognized in the Kremlin, is there's not, they're not a template uh, or a litmus test. So if India wishes to buy arms from, from Russia and India is a vibrant democracy, which it is, that's not a stumbling block. If Brazil can partner on certain issues and echo some of what Russia says about the war in Ukraine, but at the same time has a very different political form, uh, that's also fine. There's a kind of agnosticism in the Kremlin uh, about who's useful and who's not useful. But I think it's really the utility uh, that matters. And, you know, maybe this is material for another discussion, but I don't think Putin would describe himself as an authoritarian. uh, And I don't think that he wishes to sort of build particular arguments on that word. He is, of course, an authoritarian and that sort of matters. But uh, how he positions himself ideologically is, uh, is, is somewhat different, more perplexing, kind of baffling. But I think maybe a, a side alley in yes. terms of uh, other themes. I don't think anyone's sort of eagerly awaiting the results of the the 2024 elections in, in Russia. Right. But, uh, Just a yeah. quick. I mean, I completely agree with with Michael here. He sort of articulated it in an excellent fashion. I mean, the way I sometimes think about Russian messaging and sort of narratives towards the global south, it's almost like a sushi menu. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the illiberalism, there's the authoritarianism, there's the anti-Westernism. And different elements will resonate with different constituencies. Uh, you can sort of pick and choose what you like about that narrative. And that ma- narrative is, yes, it's not really for something. It's mostly about what is wrong with the existing global order, what is wrong with the West. And in some sense, Russia does have a sort of an easy play because different constituencies will sort of infuse this 
sort of Russia taking on the West with whatever their grievances are with the West. You know, I spoke to an Egyptian diplomat a few weeks ago and I asked sort of what's the sentiment over the war in Ukraine sort of on the street in Egypt. And he said, well, people don't really want Russia to lose their you know, they want, they don't want the West to win. And I asked why. And he said, well, it's because of Israel-Palestine. And I said, well, what does Israel-Palestine have to do with the war in Ukraine? And he said, well, the West is seen as uh, always backing Israel. And the Palestinian cause still really resonates here on the Arab street. And Russia is seen as this player that has been historically and also now uh, been more even-handed. And so this is why we feel a certain way about the war in Ukraine. Elsewhere in Africa, it will perhaps be about, again, grievances over Europe's colonial past. In Latin America or in Asia, there will be sort of other grievances against the West. And so different constituencies will sort of project into that effort, mm -hmm. this sort of I think we've we've written this this David taking on the the, the big Goliath, sort of whatever whatever they want to. I want to talk about Israel and Gaza in in a moment. Um, before I do that, I maybe talk about Wagner mm -hmm. and uh, their efforts in in Africa. I mean, part of what the Russia has been doing, and as an example of your points on on Russia sort of exploiting openings, is essentially providing it seems to me authoritarian support services uh, in the form of of. Yeah, Wagner, these sort of special forces groups that can go in private security contractors uh, that can provide security, that can deal with certain aspects of your gold mines or other parts of your economy, uh, that can you know be, plug in and do dis disinformation and other things that can support your regime. Um, with the coups that have occurred in the Sahel, it, 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 and and obviously with the events of Prigozhin and him no longer uh, being alive. Uh, what is the kind of current state of, of Russia's efforts uh, in this regard? Have you know has Wagner sort of disappeared in in the last few months uh, now that Prigozhin is is gone, um, or are they kind of keep keeping up what they what they were doing before? I want to be somewhat cautious in assessing the situation because it is in flux now after the the killing of Prigozhin at the end of August. But from what we can see to date, Wagner is not going anywhere. It is staying in those theaters of operation in Libya, in Sudan, in the Central African Republic, in Mali. Um, there was already an effort underway, Max, prior to Prigozhin's killing. You know, there was this two months window between the attempted mutiny and then uh, him being killed, where the Russian state dispatched officials to these locations to consult with these governments. I think, you know, in an effort to to take Wagner on a tighter leash and, and to some extent officialize this presence in those theaters. And that effort has very much continued after Prigozhin was killed. So we've had uh, Deputy Defense Minister Yevkurov uh, sort of showing up in these various locations in Mali and in, in the CAR um, and elsewhere, and definitely in Libya. Um, some folks from the Russian general staff accompanying him. So there seems to be this effort to officialize the presence. Um, certainly in Libya very much, where there's now even talk of Russia seeking a naval port in eastern Libya. Mm. And from what I understand, the new Russian ambassador who was posted to Libya some months ago, he's also been involved in this effort more generally to make Russia's presence in Libya more overt. And my sense is that for a lot of these countries in the Sahel, they will also be receptive to that effort. Because if you look at how, you know, the junta in Mali or the leadership in, in the car, how they've spoken about this relationship, you know, they were always keen to emphasize we're dealing with the Russian state. 
it's not about Wagner. We have a relationship with the Russian state. So you could sort of um, assume that they will not be um, reluctant to see that presence being more officialized. But there are sort of question marks over that, mm -hmm. over the bandwidth of the Russian defense ministry to engage in that effort when they're also very much consumed by the war in Ukraine. Um, I think the, the Wagner field commanders who remain in play, you know, they have the local relationship and the expertise, so it will be very important to bring them on board. But if they want to continue to get their salaries paid, they might sort of begrudgingly accept coming under the auspices of the Russian mm -hmm. state. So that's the effort that we see underway. I think it's it makes sense from the point of view of the Russian state to retain those assets and those operations because it's commercially attractive. You mentioned the point that Russia wants to present itself as a sort of alternative security provider, as a sort of model to those states, especially in light of, of the departure of French forces and European forces from, from the region. So I don't really see Wagner going anywhere. Just the precise incarnation of how that Wagner is going to look like, I think we're sort of observing and, and waiting to see how that's going to play out. Yeah, one of the... the most stunning meetings I had when I was in government was when I worked for Rose Gottemiller and we went to Angola, uh, I think it was in, in 2015, uh, and we met with a senior defense official and the conversation uh, that Rose started was, was in Russian. Uh, and I think sometimes we forget also that Russia uh, has had a foreign policy for not just 20, since 2022, but uh, you know the Soviet Union, Union existed before that and had many long developed ties and engagement with African countries. My colleague, uh, Mavemba Desaili, uh, has made this point. Um, he runs the CSIS Africa program that you know if Russia engages Africa. They engage with countries. They engage seriously with countries and have and uh, have a serious foreign policy. While the United States, I think. Very much when it comes to many African countries, when it comes to the situation in, in North Africa and the Sahel, and this is, I think is true for many European countries, hasn't quite uh, engaged at the same level of intensity as the Russians have, not just in the last year or so, but uh, through th uh, through many decades, and that, that matters over time. Michael, I'm curious for your thoughts more generally on, are we just sort of coming at this and saying, oh my God, the global south how come you don't agree with us when actually we haven't really been engaging that effectively with many with much of the global south while Russia has a long history of doing so? Well, it, it's always good to be uh, self-critical, and I think U.S. policy leaves a lot to be desired uh, in 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 many of these places. And when we get to the you know sort of Israel-Palestine part of the conversation, we're going to sort of reach the most difficult part of this uh, of this of this problem set for the. Uh, for the West, but I also wouldn't, you know, sort of undersell how much effort the U.S. makes in many parts of the world. I mean, I think Africa might be the the place where Russia outpaces the U.S., uh, but certainly, um, you know, U.S.-India relationship uh, has been thriving in recent years, uh, and you can point to many such relationships in 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 Latin America. I think that there is a kind of debit to Russian policy, or at least a phenomenon that you can described that doesn't look so advantageous for Russia, which is that there is a curious relationship between Russian influence and state collapse. Uh, and this is something that you could describe, of course, in Syria, that the Syrian civil war brought about state collapse in 2011. Four years later, sort of Russia enters in and has Russia sort of figured out the problem, resolved it, offered some sort of alternate model of order. Uh, by no means, they just sort of sit there and seem to operate within that anarchic world uh, and pursue certain local interests that are often a little bit opaque to me. 
uh, but it's there and sort of on the scene, and that might describe some of Russian activity or a lot of Russian activity uh, in the in the Sahel. And I'll just add one other point to that. If that's true, that sort of Russia, quote unquote, does best in places that are anarchic and don't have strong states, it is notable since the start of the 2022 war how much Russian influence has diminished in its so-called near abroad. And I think here Central Asia would be an important uh, example, but most poignantly uh, from a Russian perspective is the South Caucasus where Russia had presented itself as this arbiter, you know, sort of a diplomatic powerhouse, and it was going to be there to either resolve problems or provide order. And it's done none of that. In fact, it's really been humiliated with the uh, turn of events of the last couple of uh, of months. So, um, you know, it's always this extreme difficulty of measuring the effectiveness of a country like Russia. It's sort of more than it seems and less than it seems at the same time. But uh, in areas that are of pretty vital interest to Russia, it's been not quite asleep at the wheel, uh, but the quality of its diplomatic sort of military efforts has been deteriorating. Yeah, I think you could probably say that the West influence in countries where their state collapses probably inversely proportional exactly. goes, goes down exactly. significantly. Uh, you bring up uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan. I think that's another important topic. But let's turn now to Israel and, and Gaza and uh, the current conflict there. Hannah, you've been um, very prominent in, in, um, in uh, talking about Russia's uh, role and, uh, and and what Russia may try to get out of this conflict. Um, how do you see sort of events playing out and and how could how is Russia trying to sort of benefit from uh, what we're seeing in, in the Middle East? Sure. I mean, let me start by saying that I think Russia is really not a major player here. I don't think there is good evidence to suggest that Russia was somehow involved in instigating this attack. Um, it has a long-standing political relationship with Hamas, and we can talk about that. I mean, Russia's involvement on the Israel-Palestine file goes back a long time, and they've tried to carve out that niche for themselves, mediating between different Palestinian factions, especially as they felt that the United States was monopolizing the peace process. So there's been political ties, but I don't think we have evidence that they sort of directly supported Hamas militarily for this attack. And since it happened on October 7th, I think we can also um, make the point that Russia has not really been a major diplomatic player in trying to defuse the tensions. Yes, you have uh, Russian officials at the deputy foreign minister level receiving various Arab ambassadors in Moscow, phone calls. Uh, Deputy Foreign Minister Bagdanov showed up at the Cairo summit last weekend. But I mean, really, as President Biden was going to Israel, Putin was in China. His foreign minister, Lavrov, was in Pyongyang. Um, the Russians have been mostly active at the United Nations, trying to push a Security Council resolution, and I'll talk to that in a, in a second. But I think they are a peripheral player because they don't have the leverage over any of the parties <coughs> to um, affect a release of the hostages, humanitarian corridors, let alone get the humanitarian ceasefire, which is what the Russians have pushed for. Mm -hmm. uh, and so my argument is, though, that even though Russia is a, a peripheral player here, it is it is now standing to majorly benefit from this war. And I actually, I'm going to shamelessly plug, I have a, a, an opinion piece out in, in the New York Times in the coming days that makes that point. And I see Russia benefiting on three levels. 
First of all, there's the distraction value to Russia from this new war in the Middle East in terms of both media attention and resources being diverted away from Ukraine. I think that's a concern that we can discuss here. I mean, arguably, Israel-Palestine rightly has been in the headlines a lot since, since October 7th, and you see less attention over the continued missile bombardment in Ukraine. So that's giving the Russians, I think, some respite. And then there's the concern over, you know, military resources. Um, there's been already some reporting, I believe, of some weapons that were earmarked for Ukraine being diverted to Israel. Now the White House put up that um, uh, funding request late last week for 105 billion US dollars to Congress. And I, I saw that a sizable portion of that, I believe over 60, mil 60 billion is, is for Ukraine. But I suppose the question is, if we see two protracted wars, then how is that going to play out down the line? And I'm, I'm sure you'll have views on that. But it's it, the first benefit here is the distraction value. The second, which is not so much talked about, is that US diplomacy in the region is now at a minimum postponed, if not derailed. And by diplomacy, I mean US efforts uh, to normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia or Arab countries. Um, it's unclear when that process is going to be resumed. Russia never liked it. Russia didn't like the Abraham Accords uh, struck in 2020 um, because it was a, a, a US project that sidelined Russia. Russia always argued that we need to go back to the Middle East Quartet, which involves Russia. So the Russians never liked it and they didn't like any diplomacy flowing from the Abraham Accords, including the Israel-Saudi normalization, which was you know, the, the diplomatic choreography towards that was already complicated enough before October 7th, given Saudi demands for a civilian nuclear program, demands for US security guarantees, and then you somehow had to square the circle on the Palestinian issue. Now that's just become a much harder lift, especially the Palestinian dimension of normalization if it is going to be resumed. And Russia is not going to be sad to see that being derailed, because it doesn't want to see a sort of formidable Israeli-Arab defense partnership forming against Iran. And the Russians also hope that they can make an entry into the Saudi nuclear program. So this is sort of on the regional side. I really see Russia, Russia's main benefit in the court of global public opinion, because Russia is now um, in its messaging really emphasizing the plight of the Palestinians. I, I really think we see, um, and I was somewhat surprised by the extent of it, a pro-Palestinian leaning in Russia's messaging and maneuvering on the crisis. You know, they didn't name Hamas in the draft Security Council resolution that they tabled last week. They haven't really called what happened on October 7th terrorism. And they're trying to spotlight the humanitarian dimension of what is happening in Gaza. And I think they're quite consciously trying to put distance between themselves and this unequivocal stance on the side of Israel by the United States, because they realize that that plays into grievances over the Palestinian issue in much of the Middle East, but actually beyond the Middle East and much of the global South. So you have at the moment, given the, you know, the agony and the emotion over this issue, you have, I think, a rift widening between let's say, the West and much of the rest over mm -hmm. this issue, and Russia sort of tapping into that rift to, to, to exploit it. And so um, is Russia going to accrue very specific benefits from that? I mean, I don't think that 
countries that have a certain leaning on the Palestinian issue are now radically reorienting their foreign policies because of how Russia plays this issue at the Security Council. But it further plays into this narrative of Western hypocrisy, Western double standards, you know, caring about the war in Europe, Ukraine in one way, and then about the plight of the Palestinians in, in a different way. And um, so I think the benefits are more diffuse. They are sort of at the level of perception. But I don't think that they are, um, they are trivial. Um, and uh, Russia is accruing them without actually having to do very much. Mm-hmm. I do think there's also risks for the Russian Federation in this game, but I'm, I'm happy to come to those if uh, if we want to talk about the risks well, as well. I, I, no, I do want to talk about the risks. Um, uh, but maybe, Michael, turn to you. And sure. then the one of the risks that uh, I'll come back to you, uh, Hannah, is on the, the relationship between Israel and Russia, because that mm. strikes me as... Uh, it could be quite concerning for 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 Moscow in in pursuing um, uh, its current current trajectory. But Michael, I'm sure. curious for your your well, reaction. I, I'm fully persuaded by what what, what Hannah says, but let me offer a somewhat different uh, interpretation. Maybe the two risks that Russia faces in this very unpredictable situation. There's a dynamic in Russian foreign policy, and you saw this with Azerbaijan, Armenia where Russia plays both sides off each other to a degree or maintains important relationships with both sides of a conflict, in that case, providing arms uh, on both sides of it, uh, and sort of sees what it can get from that uh, from that sort of situation. And I think this described at least a lot of Russian foreign policy toward the Middle East. It's frankly unclear to me what Russian interests in the Middle East are. They don't seem to be predominantly economic. I'm not sure in terms of order or military affairs what Russian interests are. They seem kind of diffuse and hard to read. But I think maybe because of that, you know, Russia sort of had decent relations with a lot of different sides. As already noted, they were in contact with Hamas, with the Palestinian Authority, with Israel uh, in ways that were sort of productive to a degree uh, on both sides, the partnership with Iran, decent relations with Egypt and uh, and Saudi Arabia is actually kind of a feat to have all of that uh, all at once. And I think that that was kind of the Chinese game as well, is to sort of have all of these different partnerships and not be like the U.S., which is more entangled in particular uh, alliances. But if the tension ratchets out of control, I don't know r- what Russia does with that, because at a certain point, you sort of have to make your choices and you can't be on all sides. And I think the Russia-Israel relationship is definitely going to be a casualty of that already. Uh, and we'll sort of see, I think Israel's focused on other things at the moment, but when the smoke clears, we'll sort of see where that takes things. And that might be difficult for Russia in Syria and, uh, uh, you know, sort of elsewhere uh, in the region. So that's one potential cost of this play all sides and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of make it work on the propaganda level, but uh, not really figure out what your uh, actual interests are. The other, and this is a, probably the more unpredictable side of the equation, is that this crisis is likely to draw the U.S. back into the region. You know, the U.S. has, as, as Russia, the Soviet Union does, has very long and historic ties to the Middle East, uh, which run very, very deep and already has formidable military assets there, whether in the form of aircraft carriers or, or military bases, NATO NATO partner in Turkey and close alliance with, with Israel. So if a regional war pulls the U.S. back in, I think that that will sort of hem in Russia in ways that they were not counting on. I mean, the Russian line after 2015 is that the U.S. is leaving the region, Russia sort of back in, and you know Russia will provide things that the U.S. is no longer there. Uh, to provide. So those, I suppose, are the possible potential hypothetical risks for Russia uh, in this situation. But again, I would be really curious to figure out what the interests of this country are uh, in the region, because they are so confounding, I find. Well, one of the things with the the Israel-Russia relationship that I found 
you know, it was really, I think, quite stunning, um, the shift that happened once Russia intervened in Syria and became a, an active military player. Suddenly, the Israelis had to militarily coordinate with the Russians on the ground. Uh, and the Israelis took a lot of flack, I think quite uh, deservedly so, um, after Russia invaded Ukraine for not uh, providing the level of support that other countries uh, were doing that were, you know, at least allied and partnered with the United States. Uh, and they were hesitant to do so in part because Russia was a real player in Syria in a, a theater in which they operate militarily. Um, but now it does strike me, uh, Hannah, that that this that the Russian Iranian relationship becoming uh, much closer now having potentially a, a military dimension or now having a military dimension uh, where Russia is you know getting something of real tangible value and the Iranians presumably are as well um, and now Russia really seeming to uh, uh, not be on necessarily Israel's side uh, in this conflict. Um, what? How do you see this sort of playing out in terms of how Israel and Russia will will interact with each other going forward? Sure. I mean, maybe just one one quick addition to to what Michael said, which sort of plays into your question. This question over Russia being able to play all sides in the Middle East. Um, I do just want to note that I remember when Russia went into Syria in September 2015. There were a lot of folks out there saying that now the Russian balancing act in the region must be coming to an end because Russia took the side of Bashar al-Assad. Uh, Saudi Arabia was very upset at mm -hmm. the time. I think there was a fatwa issued against Russia. The Qataris were upset. Turkey at that time was upset. And many people declared the Russia's, Russia's ability to sustain the regional balancing act over at that time. And that never turned out to be true because different actors for their you know, very own self-interests, maintained relations with the Russian Federation. I do think it's a valid question to ask now whether Russia's relationship with Israel can survive what we're seeing playing out at the moment. Um, I already, I think, I already saw that um, Israeli officials have sort of lamented the position that Russia has taken. I think a few days ago there was a, a Likud politician who appeared on RT, actually, on a Russian TV channel, to sort of rile against this Russian position and say Russia will pay a price for this. The, the Israeli MFA has, in more polite uh, uh, words, also sort of made its displeasure with Russia at the United Nations known. Um, I guess at the moment, Israel has also other things to worry about. I'm yeah. not sure how much bandwidth they have right now to, to sort of ask the question what this means strategically for the relationship uh, with Russia. I suppose for, for Putin, the big concern leading up to this um, attack on October 7th was to ensure that the Israelis don't give lethal weapons to Ukraine. Um, that was a major concern for the Russians over the last 20 months. Now, I suppose if you're sitting in Moscow, you're less worried now about that materializing because Israel does not have weapons uh, to give away. Um, Max, I still believe that Russia does not want a complete rupture with Israel. Yes, it is true that there is an intensifying relationship with Iran. Um, Russia has, I would say, shielded Iran's near nuclear status in the region by being less helpful when it comes to efforts to restore the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, mm -hmm. something that the Russians historically have been very helpful on. And there was good cooperation with the United States and, and European partners. 
They've been less enthusiastic about that. So they're shielding Iran's near nuclear status in the region. There's other military cooperation going on, which I noted. So I think you can make the argument that the changing geopolitics of the Russia-Iran relationship against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine have fueled the sense of emboldenment of Iran and therefore are a factor in what we're now seeing play out in the Middle East. I still don't think that Russia wants to risk either a complete rupture with Israel or with the Arab states. They, I think they will try to maintain that balancing act to the extent that they can. I mean, there is a trade relationship with Israel. There is a big Russian-speaking diaspora, though I guess you can sort of say a lot of those people have left Russia because they disagree with the war in Ukraine. So how much does Putin care about those people? Which that's a valid point. But I don't think they want to risk a full rupture. The question to me is, will how things play out be really in, in Putin's control? My sense is that if this war were to escalate regionally, which I don't think is what Russia wants, Russia maybe wants a protracted war mm -hmm. in Gaza because it can accrue those benefits that I talked about earlier. It doesn't want things to spill out of control because if this war engulfs Lebanon or Syria, you know, Russian assets and gains could be at risk. That situation would also force Russia's hand, I think. If we see a regional escalation and the United States coming down hard on Israel's side, I think Russia feel just no choice but to drift further into Iran's orbit. I think that's the direction into which we would go. But I'm not sure Russian diplomacy is really prepared for going into that direction, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I want to maybe shift to the South Caucasus, but just a quick point on the, on the weapons to Ukraine and the potential impact of the war in, in uh, the coming conflict or the, the current conflict in, in Israel and Gaza. I mean, my sense is that there is going to be some overlap, but I think the overlap uh, that is the equipment for Ukraine, equipment for Israel, but I think the overlap is probably overstated. That uh, ideally, if you're the United States, the w weapons that Israel needs to conduct this war are often precision-guided munitions, uh, likely fired from aircraft that are not necessarily the munitions that are in desperate need by the Ukrainians. Uh, there has been a story about 155-millimeter mortar rounds going to Israel, but the, I don't think the United States actually wants the quantity of, of those munitions used uh, in, in a Gaza conflict would turn Gaza into Bakhmut, and that, I think, is not in anyone's interest. So I think that sort of is a... Uh, I, I don't expect kind of a lot of uh, of overlap, and I think um, I think when it comes to the request that was made uh, to Congress, um, you know, it made sense I think for the administration to link the two together, both from a political standpoint. It's also how the United States has funded wars: uh, Iraq and Afghanistan were through overseas contingency accounts, was Iraq, Afghanistan, and then whatever else that we were doing. So I think politically, that sort of is a convenient way of putting everything together in one vote. Uh, it increases the degree of the urgency. So I think there's hope that there won't be that much overlap, and this is something that 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 Congress will then then support. Um, I mean, hopefully that there won't be any overlap because uh, we'll we'll see a ceasefire uh, in 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 the conflict. But um, maybe let's turn to the South Caucasus. Now, with everything going on, 
Azerbaijan did kind of a lightning attack on Armenia uh, in September. Uh, this followed a war that occurred in, in 2020. This is over the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, region, which is uh, our, our Armenians that live there. Then we, we saw something we hadn't seen in in uh, in a very long time in terms of uh, ethnic Armenians fleeing um, what was now uh, Azerbaijani-controlled Nagorno-Karabakh for Armenia proper. Um, How did this, what did the, how did this reflect on Russia? What was Russia's role here? And Michael, you uh, brought this up, maybe I'll turn to you. Uh, How do you see uh, Russia's influence here? Has it, is this a sign of Russia's influence fading? They had long been uh, sort of uh, key partners for Armenia and had sort of uh, were were uh, had had been engaged in ensuring the peace. They had peacekeepers on the ground. Uh, how do you think this reflects on on Russia's influence? So there are two, at least two possible interpretations. There's one that suggests that there's some kind of Kremlin Kremlin logic to all of this. Uh, that they reached a point of not really caring. That you know they felt the Armenian government was maybe siding a little bit too closely. Uh, with the West, um, you know, that there just weren't uh, very strong Russian interests uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh. Specifically, there are strong Russian interests, certainly, uh, in Armenia. And so they kind of let this happen uh, by choice. uh, And, you know, whatever price was paid by Russia uh, has been paid, and they'll sort of proceed uh, unsentimentally. And if you look at the statements coming from the Russian Ministry of Foreign (coughs) Affairs, in the midst of this, they do seem very cold when it comes to uh, Armenia uh, and suggest a degree of, of just uh, detachment. But to my mind, and, and Hannah and I argued something uh, along these lines in a foreign affairs piece titled The Age of Great Power Distraction, I think that this is not uh, the most accurate possible or even a very accurate reading of what happened uh, with Russia. I mean, it does seem like Russia has just stretched terribly thin uh, and they don't have uh, the option of getting deeply involved in this crisis, especially if there would be a long protracted conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenians uh, and Azeris. And so, um, you know, sort of against their will, something that they had pledged to prevent with their peacekeepers and with lots of diplomatic activity um, is something that they were unable to prevent from uh, from happening. So I don't think it's a very rosy commentary on the nature of Russian power in a part of the world that, alas, is much closer to Russia than Israel or, you know, sort of Syria uh, or, or, or Lebanon, and you just have to wonder what cues that is going to give the region, which I would look at broadly, South Caucasus, but also uh, Central Asia, where might other things be revised sort of against Russian interests uh, going forward. It seems to me, this is the simple interpretation, maybe the simplest interpretation of what happened, but this is the price that Russia has paid, both for the decision to invade Ukraine and for the incredible funneling of resources into an ongoing, and for Russia as of yet, very unsuccessful uh, war in Ukraine. So that's the obvious reading, and sometimes the obvious reading is is also the true one. I mean, just maybe one thought to add, yeah. which I think is that, yes, it is a story about Russian constrained bandwidth, and then it becomes a story about Russian political prioritization, uh, not being willing to come down really hard in sort of defense of Armenian interests. And it's not just sort of the lightning attack that happened, but it's also the blockade of the Lachin corridor mm-hmm. since last December and Armenian grievances over that, looking towards Russia and feeling that Russia was was weak. Um, I mean, Michael and I attended a conference in the summer in, in Armenia where we heard this from Armenian interlocutors. And the story here is one of not wanting to antagonize Turkey, I think. Turkey and Azerbaijan, 
because Turkey has become more important to Russia against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine. I mean, the, the, the Russian-Turkish relationship is a complex and multi-level one, and we could have a whole other event <laughs> just talking about Russia and Turkey. But I think the big story here is that there's a relative shift in leverage between those two players uh, since February 2022, with Turkey winning leverage over Russia, Turkey becoming an important conduit for Russia's roundabout trade, and Russia simply not wanting to antagonize Turkey over the situation in the South Caucasus. And so Russia makes a sort of political call. And then, you know, if you add to that the frustrations with the Armenian government, including in light of Armenia's sort of desperate turn to look for other partners because it feels truly abandoned, that you get this mix and, uh, in which I think, you know, recent events played out. Yeah, I saw the Armenian leader was in, in France this week or last week. Uh, and I think there's been sort of a clear shift in Armenian foreign policy to truly try to get uh, the United States, Europe, to be very much engaged. And in, India for weapons, yeah. actually, yeah. And it's a, it's it's an incredibly interesting uh, dynamic and one where it does seem that we, as the West, were sort of have been slow to engage in this, in this conflict and in this region in any sort of uh, significant way. I mean, there has been diplomatic overtures by the State Department, by the Secretary of State, by uh, the EU and Charles Michel. But the reaction seemed fairly muted uh, when when events unfolded this September. Um, maybe one sort of final question. Uh, Michael, you were on the policy planning staff and, and, I'll, and Hannah, the same question for you. So now that we've seemed to kind of identify that Russia's foreign policy is going to just essentially be a spoiler foreign policy or exploit the weaknesses that they identify uh, and, in, in the West foreign policy and U.S. and Europe's foreign policy are blind spots uh, and, and will seek to take advantage of, of opportunities as they come. What's, what should the U.S. and what should Europe be doing? So if you were advising U.S. leaders and maybe, Hannah, if you're advising European leaders, how, how should they uh, approach Russian foreign policy in the years ahead when it comes to the quote-unquote global south? Uh, what should the, the strategy be? I think the the first maybe word of advice or, or, or sort of prescriptive position to to take is not to replicate the mistakes of the Cold War, and I don't th see this happening, but it's still worth it's still worth making the point. Whereas in, in the Cold War, the U.S. felt wherever the Soviet Union is, the U.S. has to be there to counter, and of course the Soviet Union felt the same way, and that dragged the U.S. into many conflicts that were not really in the vital U.S. interests, and that became you know, truly very burdensome. So if Russia is in country X in Africa, you know, it doesn't mean that the U.S. has to go in uh, to counter that. In in some respect, going back to the earlier part of this conversation, if Russia is in places where there's a high degree of state failure and anarchy, it may be that Russia will end up over time in a very difficult position just by its own uh, devices. I don't think that the U.S. has to be there to sort of push it over the cliff, mm -hmm. nor would that really make sense for a lot of issues. We should decide these issues sort of by our own, our own litmus test uh, and not make it a kind of binary global competition between Russia at all points. Now, there might be places where that's worth doing, you know, for, for particular reasons, but uh, that's, uh, you know, sort of one word. You know, the other maybe two points I would make are just more general. They're more analytical than in terms of how we can uh, behave. Uh, and they've sort of already come up, but let me repeat them with some emphasis by way of, uh, of, uh, uh, of, uh, of, of conclusion. Um, you know, I think that we have to assume that it's going to be a long war in Ukraine, 
precisely because Russia has been able to so successfully globalize the war in its terms uh, and to provide resources for it and to provide some degree of uh, legitimacy in some corners uh, and to keep the money flowing into Russia and to keep not the same level of military technology coming into Russia, but a useful enough uh, level of military technology coming into uh, into Russia. That's something that we have to infer from this, uh, and uh, that Russia will have the capacity to wage a long war, that it has the will, and that a lot of this globalization is for the sake of that. Maybe that explains sort of Russian interest in the Middle East and elsewhere. It's really for the sake of prolonging uh, the war, and so we just have to factor that in and be aware of it. And then finally, I would say, while at the same time recognizing that a lot of this is for show, uh, and that there's quite a bit of hollowness in all of these policies, and I think Russia pretends that they're much greater than they are, uh, we should show a degree of respect for what they're trying to accomplish. Not agreement, uh, but respect. Uh, they're trying to build a multipolar political order. This is a Russian project that goes back to the late 1990s and a figure by the name of Yevgeny Primakov, the sort of Russian Henry Kissinger. It is a strategy. It is an approach. It is sort of holistic, as you mentioned earlier, Max. Lots of diplomatic resources that go into it, and to a degree, also kind of diplomatic acumen, language learning, studying of local, uh, you know, kind of conditions. And so we should respect that uh, and be aware that this is something that is, to a degree, formidable uh, and not, you know, sort of trivial or not something that we can easily dismiss. So I think taking it seriously might be the uh, the best and sort of most long-term strategic response. Great. Just I'll try to be brief, but just building on these excellent points by Michael. I agree, we should have respect for what Russia is trying to achieve, a truly multipolar world, but also point out to other states on the globe that the world that Russia is seeking is not truly multipolar, that Russia will be a primus inter pares. I don't think Russia believes in true equality of sovereign nations internationally, but it does believe that certain countries are more important and more powerful than others. And I think that's maybe a message that one should sort of also reinforce with other countries. Um, Another general thought, Max, and it's going to be really hard because I guess any foreign policy, even the foreign policy of the United States only has so much bandwidth and resources, but there needs to be an effort with countries of the global south in multilateral institutions to give them the feeling that they're still bandwidth for their concerns, for their issues, whether it's from, you know, ranging from development to nuclear disarmament. I mean, I've, in my own work and, and sort of consultations with diplomats from from various global South countries have heard a lot of sort of grievance that it was all, it's been all about Ukraine over the last 20 months mm -hmm. and that these countries feel that their own concerns are not always, you know, given sort of enough room. And so I think, you know, that's going to be hard to sort of keep the focus on Ukraine, but also make sure that there's focus on other issues. And then perhaps just my final thought here is, and that's specific to Russia's expanding uh, cooperation with these uh, countries um, that are sanctioned, to sort of have very realistic um, expectations in terms of how much we can just rein in and mitigate Russia's cooperation with other countries through these tools like export controls and sanctions. Because a lot of countries are sanctioned now, you know, and I think they're adapting and improvising to to mitigate those efforts, to constrain that kind of cooperation. So I think um, it's more about an effort to strengthen the U.S.'s own partnerships in regions like the Korean Peninsula, the Indo-Pacific, and, and also the Middle East. Great. This conversation can and should continue, but, uh, but we'll have to leave it there. Um, I want to thank Hannah for, for being here from, from Berlin, for joining us. Michael, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for, for joining us. Please uh, stay tuned to CSIS for more conversations like this. Thank you so much. Thank you.
you've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at csis.org.